0: From Public Radio International, This is the World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, November 7th. I'm Aaron Schachter in Boston. And from London, I'm Marco Werman. The election did not change the balance of power in Washington, but the vote was a watershed moment for Latinos, who were key to President Obama's re-election. This Latino says the
1: Romney campaign blew it. I'm still so dumbfounded as to the Republican Party. This would have been the time for them to open up their arms and say, we welcome you into our fold.
0: And later, the clever dog laboratory. Scientists in Austria study the inner lives and personalities
2: of dogs. DRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. This is The World. I'm
0: Aaron Schachter in Boston.
3: And I'm Marco Werman in London.
0: A re-elected President Obama could be forgiven for wanting to kick back and relax a little bit today. But, Mr. President, it ain't going to happen. Now that the election is over, there's no shortage of challenges clamoring for Obama's attention, many in the foreign policy arena. In a moment, we'll hear about two policy dilemmas facing the president, Israel and Syria. But first, Marco Werman, the congratulations messages for President Obama have been pouring in from leaders around the world.
3: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, if you read in, there's a lot of diplomatic code in those messages, too, not to mention some... Really interesting use of language. For instance, Pakistan's president warmly felicitated the president. <laughs>
0: and I spotted something a little off kilter, too. Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, sent his message via Telegram.
3: Yeah, right, Telegram, and maybe next time he'll uh, use a fax machine. Yeah, and apparently uh, Putin
0: is going to follow up that Telegram with this thing called a uh, telephone call.
3: All right. whatever that is. Um, I did see that separately. Obama's win led many officials in Russia to exhale. A spokesman at the Kremlin uh, said Obama's victory will be beneficial for Russia.
0: And uh, messages from where you are there in the UK?
3: Yeah. Prime Minister David Cameron sent the president a tweet. Uh, It read, warm congratulations to my friend. Look forward to continuing to work together.
0: Now, uh, as you say, congratulations coming in from around the world, including China. The president there, Hu Jintao, mentioned something called positive progress in his message.
3: Right, and I should also tell you, Aaron, that one of the big headlines at the BBC today was made by a longtime correspondent, John Simpson, that Chinese leaders are glad President Obama was re-elected because they think he's a pushover, and easy to manipulate. Um, And one other thing, Aaron, and this isn't so much about congratulations and messages as celebrations. Earlier today, I spoke with Emmanuel Igunza. He's a journalist with BBC Africa. And uh, he was in Kogelo, Kenya this morning. It's Barack Obama's ancestral home. And he told me about the scene there very early this morning when people learned that Obama had been reelected
4: it was really early people had been uh, staying overnight following the events on live television quietly but in the early morning uh, when the sun was just coming out and the results were first announced people just broke up into songs and there were people going out in the streets very early in the morning I must say at around 7 or 7.30 in Kenyan time and people were just with their motorcycles going out and singing songs and you might know that Barack Obama's grandmother lives in this area so they processed also, from here to her place where they also danced and sang more songs, praises, songs, and choirs were also singing here, praising God for what they called a miracle that President Barack Obama had gotten a second term. How many people live in Kogelo? Probably 20,000 people. Now, President
3: Obama paid a well-known visit to Kogelo before he was president. Uh, He was not focused really on Africa much at all in his first term. How much are the people of Kenya, and of Kogelo specifically, anticipating a visit from President Obama sometime in the next four years?
4: People during the first term had anticipated that he will be making a visit here. But he never did, and people have always been wanting him to come here. But I guess with the second uh, term, now the people we've been talking to have been a bit cautious about that. They do realize that he's the U.S. president and not necessarily with any ties with Kenya. But everyone you talked to was saying that they are welcoming their son back. If he has time, he could make a visit here.
3: And that was Emmanuel Igunza, a journalist with BBC Africa, speaking with me earlier today.
0: Marco, thanks so much. We'll see you back here next week in Boston.
3: You're welcome, Aaron.
0: You can find more of Marco's election coverage from London. We've got a special podcast you want to download from theworld.org elections. As people in Israel watched the American presidential election play out, they were also thinking about their own upcoming elections. Israelis vote for a new government in late January. And as the world's Matthew Bell reports from Jerusalem, President Obama's election victory here could have an impact on the campaign
5: there. It's an open secret in Israel. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and President Obama don't get along fabulously well. And Netanyahu, in his heart of hearts, would have much preferred to see Mitt Romney win Tuesday's election. Now there's speculation that Barack Obama, freed from the constraints of his re-election campaign, might get tough on Netanyahu. U.S. Ambassador Dan Shapiro was asked about that possibility during an event at Tel Aviv University this morning, and he said it was simply ridiculous. President uh, Obama, anyone who knows him, uh, knows that that is uh, uh, not how he thinks, that's not how he acts, that's not how he governs. And he is, as he always has been, going to be focused exclusively on promoting United States interests. Uh, that's always been his focus. Uh, that's what he was elected to do, and that's what he was reelected to do. But the question is, can bygones really be bygones? A former ambassador to Washington, Salai Marador, speaking at the same event, said maybe.
1: I perceive this president to be very strategic, very disciplined, so I don't uh, see him uh, carried away too much by emotions. But I don't think that we can just assume that uh, what has gone between the two administrations, especially the two leaders over the last four years, will have evaporated just because there is a second term.
0: I want to congratulate President Obama on his re-election.
5: Prime Minister Netanyahu met with the American ambassador today and said he looks forward to working with Barack Obama to advance the goals of peace and security.
0: And I look forward to working with him to advance our goals of peace and security. So I want to congratulate him on behalf of the people of Israel.
5: Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Mr. Prime Minister, on behalf of the president, the vice president, and the American people, thank you for those good wishes. Warm words aside, Netanyahu's political opponents pounced. The centrist Kadima party issued a statement accusing the prime minister of betting on the wrong president and getting Israel in trouble with the U.S., The former TV journalist-turned-politician Yair Lapid accused Netanyahu of damaging relations with the U.S. by meddling on behalf of the Republican nominee. One of Netanyahu's cabinet ministers leapt to his defense. Israel Katz said there was no Israeli meddling in the U.S. election and that this prime minister knows best how to navigate the relationship with the U.S. and the world. National security expert Mark Heller of Tel Aviv University says the Israeli public, left, right, and center, views Israel's alliance with America as vital. And he says the perception that there's bad blood between Netanyahu and President Obama is sure to be an issue in Israel's election campaign. Some Israelis
2: might be receptive to the argument that it would be better for Israel if someone else were the prime minister who could open a new page with Obama.
5: Here's another possibility, though. Netanyahu could double down and bet against Barack Obama again, so to speak. The prime minister could decide to play up his policy differences with the U.S. president on Iran and on Jewish settlement building in the West Bank. The gamble here would be that Netanyahu's disagreements with Mr. Obama would be viewed as strengths, and the Israeli public would re-elect him for another term as well. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Israel's
0: neighbor, Syria, continues to be engulfed in violence. In fact, the civil war there has escalated in the past week, while we in the U.S. were focused on Sandy and the presidential campaign. Now that the election is over, President Obama is under international pressure to give the crisis new attention. Today, Turkey announced that NATO is deploying Patriot missiles along the Turkish border with Syria. Stephen Cook is Senior Fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Stephen, let's start with that NATO Patriot missile deployment. Uh, What are the missiles doing there? What are they for?
6: Well, it's not entirely clear how useful Patriot missile batteries are for the Turks. There's been no indication that the Syrians are going to use their own arsenal of missiles, which are what the Patriots are supposed to defend against. Some have suggested that this is the precursor to the establishment of a de facto safe zone in Syria. But it, it's hard to really see how, how the Patriots are the precursor, given their limitations.
0: The Patriots are an anti-missile missile? Is that what they're for? Yes,
6: exactly. Okay. The Patriots are an anti-missile missile. So it seems that this deployment is more about NATO and the United States in particular as the primary actor in NATO, reassuring the Turks about their security in a, in a symbolic way. Washington wants to be sensitive to Turkey's security concerns, without, however, getting directly involved. I don't think that this has anything to do with the election. I think it's a coincidence.
0: You don't think there's been any reticence uh, on Obama's part to um, step up actions against Syria because of elections?
6: Well, when you, when you talk to administration officials, of course, who may or may not be posturing to outsiders, uh, they say that there genuinely wasn't a- an election timeline Uh, related to action or inaction on Syria. That's to say that uh, they were told not to do anything until November 6th and then November 7th there would be if the president won all options were on the table. I think there is a genuine reluctance on the part of the State Department, the Defense Department and the White House to get involved in a situation in which the United States and its NATO allies can find themselves trapped. Uh, and essentially facing a, a situation that's similar to the one which uh, we find in Afghanistan, uh, having been there now for more than a decade.
0: Okay. Give, but, but given the fact that the election is over, can you foresee the Syria policy changing at this point? Are you hearing anything about that?
6: Well, we did see Secretary of State Clinton in Doha, the capital of Qatar, trying to help forge a new, more unified Syrian opposition. I think that you will probably see a more diplomatic initiative, but I think that that is probably cover for not doing much in terms of military assistance to the Free Syrian army or direct involvement in, uh, in the conflict. It is complex and multi-layered, and I think that uh, the administration is, is profoundly concerned about the United States getting stuck there.
0: Right. Nobody wants ground troops to go in, but there must be options short of that. I mean, the, the no-fly zone, which you mentioned, humanitarian corridor, or something.
6: Certainly, I think that, and at at one time, um, I had been an advocate of a no-fly zone or at least closed air support for the Free Syrian Army when Syrian tanks were shelling were shelling Syrian cities. Uh, the the fact is that we've moved into a different phase of the Syrian civil war. That certainly a no-fly zone would help, given the the Syrian government's use of fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters. So. One could imagine a situation in which NATO was to be involved in enforcing a no-fly zone. But at this point, there doesn't seem to be a real inclination within Europe or or here in Washington for that kind of action. Uh, one of the major responses to not having a no-fly zone in, in to, to critics who said, why not a no-fly zone, was that uh, the Syrians, uh, up until a few months ago, we're not using aircraft and helicopters. Well, they've been using them for a couple of months, and still there has been this reluctance to establish a no-fly zone.
0: Right. Stephen Cook, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you. Thank you. And we have more reaction to President Obama's victory in the form of political cartoons from around the globe. You'll see a few image of victory cigars and a write-on kind of sentiment. One cartoon shows Romney strapped to the top of the car instead of his dog. A few African cartoonists weigh in with jokes about how African presidents tend to win elections. Get it? Obama? Kenya? But most of the caricatures depict a gray, tired, and haggard Obama trying to govern a gray, tired, and haggard America with a global economy in disarray. You can see our global cartoon slideshow all at theworld.org.
2: This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Anyone who knows dogs knows they
0: come with their own personalities. Their temperaments vary as much as their shapes and sizes. Scientists in Austria are trying to understand what makes some dogs bold and happy, others shy and sullen, and they want to put those findings to use. As part of our weekly series with the PBS program Nova Science Now, reporter Ari Daniel-Shapiro went to Vienna to visit the Clever Dog Lab and meet its canine volunteers.
7: In the rolling hills of Lower Austria, a sleek black and white dog winds its way up a grassy slope. It tenses and darts, then pauses before darting again. This is Pip, a young male border collie.
8: He's looking for the sheep. He's trying to find them, because he knows that they must be somewhere over there.
7: Krista Fights is Pip's owner, and she trained him to work with sheep. She has a small flock of about three dozen. Pip, come here. At last, the sheep come into view. Way off. Pip dashes off, circling wide around the sheep, and then slowly advances towards them. They scurry away. Pip follows his herding commands, but Fight says he's had an independent streak ever since he was a puppy. He'd venture off to explore. Even now, it's not always easy to get him to come back. About 15 miles away, in the heart of Vienna, another dog is showing off a few tricks. This is Nessie, a tan terrier mix. She watches her owner, Uli Stangl intently.
8: Her favorite trick is to walk around me backwards.
7: <laughs> Can I see?
8: Yes, Nessie,
7: zurück. Sure enough, Nessie leaps around Stangl in a tight circle, facing backwards.
8: Ooh, it's super. Fine.
7: Nessie doesn't tend to wander far from Stangl.
8: She likes to be very close to me. If I am in my bed, she's mostly next to me. If I'm sitting in my camping chair, she's under it or on my lap.
7: Pip, the sheep-herding country dog, and Nessie, the trick-performing city dog, live very different lives. But both spend time at an unusual facility at the Veterinary University of Vienna. It's called the Clever Dog Lab. We are interested in lots of different questions concerning dogs. Friederike Ranga, a biologist, helps run the lab. Ranga says the main goal of the lab is to investigate how dogs understand their world. So this includes, of course, a social world. Social, meaning both other dogs and people. As well as their physical environment. The lab's been around for five years. It's one of a small number of research centers around the world devoted to studying how dogs think and behave. Scientists say it's an important field of study because domesticated dogs have evolved to live with humans, meaning they may have a lot to tell us about our own brains and behaviors. To do its work, the Clever Dog Lab relies on pets as volunteers. Over 600 dogs in and around Vienna participate in experiments. One of the main research interests here is canine personality. The scientists run the dogs through tests to measure things like extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism, and dependency. Nessie, the city terrier, arrives for a session at the lab. Today we're actually
8: going to do one of the tests from the personality test, and we were particularly interested
7: in how she would
8: respond to a novel object.
7: Lisa Wallace, a PhD student in the lab, sets up the experiment. She places a battery-powered stuffed toy on the floor and switches it on. The toy giggles and starts rolling around. Nessie approaches the toy to investigate, but quickly returns to her owner for the rest of the minute-long experiment. Wallace says the way an animal responds when it sees something new in its environment reveals aspects of its personality.
8: A very bold individual would probably uh, immediately approach in a confident manner with a confident tail position, body position, and a very shy dog might not approach or might need more of support from the owner before it would come closer.
7: On this particular scale, Nessie rates somewhere in the middle. She's fairly dependent on her owner. Pip, the Border Collie, is up next. He's about to take a different personality test. This one is to see how dependent he is on people. The trial starts with his owner looking on as Pip plays ball with the experimenter. In this case, graduate student Stephanie Reimer. Reamer uses a tennis ball to play fetch with Pip. He runs all over the room, his tail wagging furiously. He can't get enough. At this point, Remer asks the dog's owner to leave the room. Pip doesn't even register her departure. He keeps on playing. Then Reemer leaves the room. Only Pip remains inside. Reemer watches how he responds through a live video feed.
8: We can watch from the screen what he does. And actually, he's still quite happy as long as he has a ball. He doesn't mind that he's on his own
7: now. <laughs> the results are clear. Pip is a very independent dog. He can entertain himself, which is somewhat unusual for a dog. The animals that come through here are run through dozens of tests like this. One thing the lab is trying to work out is the role of genetics versus the environment in shaping canine personality. So sometimes multiple dogs from the same breed are compared. They're also studying how personality changes as a dog ages, just as it does in humans. Again, the lab's Lisa Wallace.
8: Because our dogs are living longer and longer because they're getting better (laughs) veterinary care, we're getting an aging population of dogs. Uh, And what people are realizing is that old dogs suffer from doggy version of of human Alzheimer's, if you like, which they call canine cognitive dysfunction.
7: Wallace hopes to pinpoint which personality changes in dogs are a natural part of aging and which ones aren't to determine the best way to care for older dogs. Some of the work being done in the lab has implications for dogs that are used as service animals. Stephanie Reimer says for these dogs, personality is key.
8: A good guide dog has to be quite self-confident, so they have to say to the owner, no, we stop here if there's some danger that the blind
7: person doesn't see. On the other hand, a seizure dog, which can help someone with epilepsy identify an impending seizure, should be more dependent. It needs to be focused on its owner, says Reimer. There is a personality test trainers use to help predict which puppies will work out best as service dogs, but Reamer says that test hasn't been fully validated. Part of her work is to see whether a puppy's performance has any bearing on its performance as an adult. This work could also be useful in helping place pets from shelters, finding the right match between a dog and a new family, for instance. That may require taking the personality of both the dog and the owner into account. Pip's owner, Krista Feitz, would agree. She has five Border Collies and says they have five different personalities.
8: I choose those dogs because I could see that there's something in them that I have in my character. Every dog is a
7: part of me. And every dog of hers volunteers at the Clever Dog Lab. She says it's a chance for them to exercise their brains.
8: Tschüss. Thank
7: you. At the end of the session at the lab, Feitz secures her five Border Collies in her van they're heading back to the countryside. The sheep await. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Vienna. We've got photos of Pip
0: and Nessie and the other volunteers at the lab. They're at theworld.org. And tune in tonight to Nova Science Now on PBS. Host David Pogue explores the question, what are animals thinking? And yeah, we all think we've got the cleverest dogs, but do you? We want to see your pictures. Tweet them using the hashtag CleverDog and see some of the clever and not-so-clever canines who are part of the world family. (music) This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter, ahead the global implications of legalizing pot in Colorado and Washington
9: state. What happened last night really is groundbreaking. No modern jurisdiction has ever removed the prohibition on production, distribution, and possession of marijuana for non-medical purposes, not even Holland.
2: CRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World
0: Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The 2012 election will be remembered first and foremost for giving President Obama four more years, but the results last night also marked a watershed moment for Latinos. They voted overwhelmingly for President Obama, and by many calculations, the Latino vote was crucial in putting Mr. Obama back in the White House. The world's Jason Margolis has been reporting on Latinos in the U.S. for a few years now. And uh, Jason, you've been to a lot of swing states where a lot of the Latinos are. Remind us, if you would, what role they played.
10: So Latinos make up around 10 percent of the electorate. And it's estimated that 70 to 75 percent of Latino voters went for President Obama. If Mitt Romney had captured as many votes as George Bush in 2004— As Rom- many Latino votes. As, as many Latino votes. He would have won the popular vote. And depending on where those votes were cast,
0: he could very well be the president-elect this morning. So we're talking about states like Florida, New Mexico, Nevada, Colorado, decisive battleground states. Mm-hmm, exactly. Now, now, you and others who follow this uh, aren't especially surprised by what happened. Not at all. Well, <laughs> I'm, well not, I'm, not, I'm
10: not surprised because the polling data has been out there. I've been following it pretty obsessively. And and President Obama has consistently been polling 70, 80 percent of the Latino vote. Well, and, but, but, but if the Republicans knew this was going to happen, why did it happen? That is an excellent question. And I asked a lot of Republicans that very question. If you know that the Latinos are going to vote for the Democratic Party if you hold these positions on immigration reform, which is a large reason why they went for the Democrats, if you know this and you know you need to capture the Latino vote to win the presidency while you're doing this. So I asked Jacob Monty this question in Houston, Texas. He's a board member with the group Hispanic Republicans of Texas. The Republicans need to wake up on this issue because if they don't, if their Hispanic numbers don't improve, we're going to become a minority party. So that, that's one of you. Let me just play one more. This is Fernando Romero, who is president of the nonpartisan group Hispanics in Politics in Las Vegas.
1: I'm still dumbfounded as to the Republican Party. This would have been the time for them to open up their arms and saying, we welcome you into our fold. And yet they have you know, grown fangs and, and really have become incredibly uh, anti-Latino and anti-immigrant.
0: So, uh, Jason, if Republicans need Latinos to win the presidency in the future, how do they bring them over to the party?
10: Well, what they tried to do, Mitt Romney tried to distance himself from his remarks during the Republican primaries. During the primaries, just to refresh your memory, he was in favor of the idea of self-deportation, that things will get so bad for undocumented immigrants that they'll just leave. And many Latinos, Latino citizens, as well as the undocumented, found this incredibly offensive. So Romney and the Republicans ran these commercials in a state like Nevada saying, President Obama has failed you and Mitt Romney is the one for comprehensive immigration reform. I spoke with um, Fernando Romero, the man we just heard from again recently, and I said, well, what do, what do you think of this new tack that the Republicans and Mitt Romney are taking?
1: These this ads are condescending because they don't give us, the Latino community, any credit for thinking.
0: So, given this uh, election campaign, is all hope lost for Republicans and Latinos?
10: No. (laughs) So, uh, the group Latino Decisions did some polling and they found that 31% of Latinos said they would vote for a Republican if the Republican Party took the lead on immigration reform. And I spoke with some Latinos in Ohio this morning, and Ohio, like all the other states, voted overwhelmingly for President Obama. And first of all, they were jubilant that the president got reelected. But I spoke with a man. Hugo Urazar, originally from Paraguay, and I asked him, I said, were you voting for the Democratic Party or were you voting for President Obama over Mitt Romney? And he said, no, we were voting for President Obama. And I said, would you vote for a Republican in the future? And this is what Hugo Urazar told me.
1: I believe that if uh, the Republicans soften their rhetoric and if they pay close attention to the needs of the Latino, they can draw a lot of votes, Latino votes, because a lot, a lot of people, a lot of Latinos, have some of the values that the Republican Party uh, offers.
0: You know, that's interesting because that seems to be what Republicans were saying during the entire election campaign. No, mm-hmm. no, no, we don't have to talk to Latinos about immigration. Latinos are Americans. They care about uh, the economy and jobs and uh, just like anyone else.
10: That's true. If you look at poll after poll, Latinos care about jobs in the economy first and foremost. But they do care about immigration reform. That is consistently their second most important issue. So really, it's going to be very interesting for the Republican Party. They're going to have to look inside themselves and decide what is their identity. Do they want to compromise on immigration reform? Or do they say, no, this is who we are. We, we, we don't want to give a pass to these estimated 12 million undocumented immigrants. This is what our party stands for. So they're going to have to decide, and that's going to be very interesting, which path they take.
0: The world's Jason Margolis on uh, Latinos' newfound political power in the United States. Jason, thank you. You're welcome. Yesterday, voters in Colorado and Washington state approved measures allowing the recreational use of marijuana. Their counterparts in Oregon said no to legalizing pot. The ballot questions in those three states were of interest in Mexico. That's because even limited moves toward legalization in the U.S. could hit Mexico's drug cartels. Bo Kilmer has looked into how marijuana legalization here might affect drug trafficking revenues in Mexico. He co directs the Drug Policy Research Center at the RAND Corporation. Kilmer says the yes votes in Colorado and Washington were unprecedented.
9: What happened last night in Colorado and Washington really is groundbreaking. No modern jurisdiction has ever removed the prohibition on production, distribution, and possession of marijuana for non-medical purposes, not even Holland.
0: So, Bo Kilmer, how do you begin to measure what this might mean in Mexico if uh, a few states here in the U.S. start to legalize marijuana?
9: Well, it's hard to figure out how much Mexican marijuana is actually consumed in the United States. Our best estimates range from about 40 to 67 percent. It's probably more than half. Now, with Colorado and Washington legalizing, when production is allowed there, and if it only serves the markets in Colorado and Washington, it won't have much of an impact at all on the revenues for the drug trafficking organizations. However, if legal production in Colorado and Washington ends up supplying the rest of the country, that's when the Mexican drug trafficking organizations could lose $2 billion a year. However, that depends largely on how the federal government responds. Right. That's assuming that the federal government just allows this to happen and doesn't get involved, and that doesn't seem very likely.
0: Right. Even if the federal government allows this to happen, can you, you imagine a scenario where marijuana is trucked around the country from Colorado and Washington?
9: Oh, definitely. I mean, right now... Really uh, moved across state lines like that? Oh, very much so. Uh, One of the big things you have to realize with legalizing marijuana production is that you end up dramatically reducing the production costs. Right now, when someone buys marijuana, methamphetamine, or heroin, a lot of what they're doing is compensating the drug dealer and everyone else along that supply chain for their risk of arrest and risk of incarceration you realize that goes away with uh, legalization and then you uh, if you have commercial uh, production you'd also expect there to be economies of scale changes in technology so in a report we did in 2010 uh, looking at marijuana legalization in California you know at that time an ounce of high quality you know high potency marijuana in California was running about $300 an ounce i mean depending on the mode of production you could see those costs those production costs just plummet and even if you apply taxes and and uh, fees, there's no way that you're going to be able to keep it at its black market price. That's why the Colorado uh, marijuana could be more competitive you know, in other states.
0: Have you looked at all on what impact this limited legalization here in the U.S. might have on the violence in Mexico between the drug
9: gangs? Well, so much of it actually ends up depending on how much their revenues go down. If Washington and Colorado are if those legal regimes are only supplying users in those states, there's still going to be a lot of the market available for the Mexican drug trafficking organizations. So the only situation where we think that, that legalization would really hurt the, the Mexican drug trafficking organizations is if uh, it got to the point to where uh, the federal government didn't get involved and a domestically grown marijuana was feeding most of the market. But even then, it's really hard to predict what would happen to the violence because you realize that uh, these drug trafficking organizations have portfolios. I mean, they're not just trafficking marijuana. Some are trafficking you know, cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine. You know, there's, all, there's human trafficking. There's extortion. So marijuana is only one small piece of the revenues coming into these drug trafficking organizations.
0: Just a part of their business venture. Yes. Bo Kilmer co-directs the Drug Policy Research Center at the RAND Corporation. He talked with us about how marijuana legalization in the U.S. might affect drug trafficking revenues in Mexico. Bo, thank you.
9: Thanks very much, Aaron.
0: One of the first trips that the newly elected President Obama plans to make is to Cambodia. Officials there say he's coming later this month for an Asia summit. But the Cambodian government might bring up another issue. It stalled efforts to recover some ancient Khmer artifacts now in the U.S. Reporter Bruce Wallace has the story. Imagine how effective this
1: massive guardian figure must have been when it originally protected a major temple in Cambodia.
11: The massive figure currently watches over the Norton Simon Museum in Southern California. This is from the museum's audio guide.
0: There's a look of menace on the guardian's square face with its rolling eyes, and arched eyebrows, curling moustache, and stylized beard. Add the figure's thick neck,
2: broad shoulders, and solid body, and it's clear that he is someone to be reckoned
11: with. The five-foot-tall statue was carved during a burst of creativity in the 10th century in what is today Cambodia. Back then, it was part of the Khmer Empire. A new king had come to power, moved the capital to a place called Kha and launched a temple-building spree. The statues that adorned the temples pushed already advanced Khmer artistry to new heights.
12: They weren't just creating large monumental figures, they were creating figures that have extremely refined carving details.
11: Helen Ibbotson Jessup is an expert on Khmer art and founder of the nonprofit Friends of Khmer Culture.
12: The tension, the muscular tension, the power is so vividly expressed by the sculptor. It's extraordinarily dynamic statuary.
11: Now, the Norton Simon statue, a companion piece at Sotheby's Auction House in New York, and two other related ones at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, are caught up in an international tug-of-war. The skirmish heated up in April when the U.S. government, at Cambodia's request, moved to seize the Sotheby's statue, saying it was likely looted. Cambodia then made similar claims about the other statues. One difficulty that's playing out right now in the Sotheby's case is that it's just not clear what laws apply here.
10: The cultural property law field is really a patchwork of different kinds of law. It's not a body of law that a law student would easily find in a casebook.
11: Rick St. Hilaire is a cultural heritage lawyer who's been watching the Sotheby's case closely. He says it could have big implications.
10: How is this going to unfold? How is the law going to be impacted? How, how is policy going to be impacted? The outcome may very well dictate whatever policy might be embarked upon in the
11: future. Sotheby's Norton Simon and the Met declined to comment for this story. In June, a Met spokesperson told the New York Times that, in the 80s, when these statues were given to the museum, there weren't clear rules on accepting such antiquities. Helen Ibbotson-Jessup says others argue that when major museums preserve and display such statues, it serves a greater public good. That
12: preservation of antiquities from other countries is a great service that the museums of the West offer that it shares the civilizations of other nations to a very wide audience and on a very meticulously well-preserved
11: basis. In court hearings, Sotheby's lawyers have wondered why the Cambodian government is only now expressing interest in these statues, some of which have been on display for over 30 years. Jessup says one reason is that, for much of that time, Cambodia has been fighting, or recovering from, a devastating civil war. They've just recently started to take stock of their cultural heritage. Chen Chen Ratna publishes a magazine and website devoted to Khmer culture and recently finished his doctoral dissertation on Khmer. He says that recovering works like these statues and incorporating their stories into the broader Cambodian story is part of his country's rebuilding process.
7: We can create the new story or the new history
9: about Cambodia. And we can see our ancestors have a lot of culture, have a lot of treasures in the past. and. We had to learn about that. We had to know about that.
11: In the next few weeks, the judge will rule on a Sotheby's motion to dismiss the case. For the world, I'm Bruce Wallace.
0: A very different kind of artistic treasure is featured in today's Geo Quiz. <laughs> We're looking for a city in Quebec where a spectacular painting can be seen publicly for the first time in more than six decades. The painting is by Salvador Dali and it's called Mad Tristan. It depicts the Cornish knight Tristan and the Irish princess Isolde. Their scandalous love story inspired Wagner's opera Tristan and Isolde. Dali's surreal interpretation is painted on a curtain that served as a backdrop for a ballet production. There's a dandelion where a head should be and ants crawling in the background. We'll hear more about the painting when we name the city, Quebec's largest, by the way, where Mad Tristan is now on view. And Mad Tristan is also now on view at theworld.org. Check it out. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Let's track down that Salvador Dali painting that we mentioned in our geo-quiz. It's been out of public view since Dali painted it in 1944 for the New York Metropolitan Opera. But it's in view at the Place des Arts in Montreal today. That's the answer to our geo-quiz. Jennifer Whisper is an art historian who has had a chance to see the painting Jennifer, if you would, describe this surreal mural, and who are the figures in the foreground?
12: It's, it's not a mural, it's a curtain. So it's uh, what the spectator first saw, and then it was lifted, and he discovered the decor. It represents Tristan and Isolde, the couple, uh, and it's the subject of a ballet by Dali. He wrote the costumes, the decor, and the libretto, and it's, uh, it's this couple with surrealist traits uh, because there is for example a wheelbarrow sticking out of the back of the character on the right and you have a head of a uh, character on the left that represents a dandelion uh, you have also an enormous drop of blood flowing from the body of the woman a drop of blood which is bigger than an egg and it's an atmosphere which is quite dark with a very uh, dark sky, uh, like a storm about to to
0: burst. The artwork depicts, um, as you say, the adulterous affair between Tristan and Isolde.
12: And uh, I forget two important details, two enormous crutches, red on each side of these characters, uh, supporting nothing.
0: I love Deli's work. It's often very confusing. <laughs> yes. Do you think in the way this image looks that it's, I don't want to say a, a, a happy story. Obviously, it's not. But is he showing the story as, as a romantic love, uh, a doomed love? What do you think?
12: He called uh, this story "Mad Tristan. He wanted this to be called in French Tristan fou, in reference to uh, Breton's uh, famous novel Mad Love. And so he's uh, showing uh, the effect of destruction, the destructive effect of love. Uh, And it's an idea from psychoanalysis, Hmm. if you are in love, you are sick, you are hypnotized, (laughs) you are alienated. And so when he had some uh, certain expectations, which he communicated to Massine, the choreographer, he wanted that the dance would would be inspired by uh, catalepsy, hysterical movements, uh, uh, seizures, So it's not uh, a happy story, and it was not represented and depicted in a happy way, contrary to other ballets which are much more grotesque, like Bacchanal or like Labyrinth.
0: Mm -hmm. It's not
12: the case there.
0: And and what does the painting evoke for you? Do you get this madness of love?
12: Yes, I think it's the tragedy uh, of love and the fragility of a love story. It's, and and you, you can see that with the gestures of the woman, especially the way that he uh, puts emphasis of the hands, distorting the body to a point, making her make a gesture which is impossible to make, the way she turns her body, or the size of her uh, forearm. Of her hands, and, yeah. And no, no, even the forearm, you know, from your hand to yes, your yes. elbow, it's, it's too short. So he's showing uh, that madness and what it does on the body.
0: You'd think she would be grabbing her heart to sort of express her heartache. Exactly,
12: exactly. but uh, the way he does it, Dali could not put the the hands on the heart because he says in a famous talk that he gave in the Sorbonne in the 50s, he said that uh, he couldn't feel his heart, that he felt everything in his elbow. (laughs) Which made everybody laugh, which is not that funny because if you don't have a heart, and he said, I don't feel my heart. In fact, he says the thing backwards, You, the heart feels, but you don't feel your heart. But if you don't feel your heart, it means you can't love and you can't be loved.
0: Hmm.
12: So that's why what I think is tragic. It's not only the dark mood, as you said, it's also this impossible... Uh, Uh,
0: access to love. I understand the mural will now serve as a backdrop for a Swiss circus, and acrobatic performance troupe. In its new show, it's called La Verite. Can you tell us a bit about it?
12: Danieli Finzi-Pasca, a clown and director who is going to make a show in dialogue with this curtain, which will appear. It will be surrounded by the music of the company, by acrobats, by junglers, by contortionists. It yeah. will be in the show uh, the 70th of January when the Verita opens, and then it's, it uh, goes around the world with the show. With the creativity of the director, we have a, a, an extraordinary uh, way to access to this work through the dialogue of another creator.
0: Art historian Jennifer Whisper in Montreal, Quebec. Jennifer, thank you so much. Thank you. Finally today, here's reporter Beto Arcos with a story about the gaita and the Colombian musicians who've been playing this indigenous instrument for decades.
1: Los gaiteros de San Jacinto take their name from the gaita. It's an indigenous wooden flute about a yard long from Colombia's Caribbean coast. Los Gaiteros have been playing Colombian cumbia since the late 1930s. Gabriel Torregrosa is one of the younger members of the group. He's in his late 30s, and he's the musical director of the band. Torregrosa says Los Gaiteros and their musical style, played on indigenous instruments, have been the main influence on every form of cumbia in Colombia for decades. Eh, la de es Torregrosa, Torregrosa says you can hear three ethnic traditions eh, in Los Gaiteros' music. There is the indigenous influence of the gaita and the maracas, the African polyrhythms on the drums, and the Spanish lyrics. is one of Latin America's most popular dance forms. The cumbia beat is essentially the same played in every country, but the instruments that play it can vary, from accordion to keyboards, electric guitar, or acoustic bass. But no matter the trends, los gaiteros continue to play with the original indigenous instruments. Torregrosa says, For los gaiteros, cumbia is the foundation of everything they do. He says, even though the music remains popular in small towns and cities around Colombia, radio stations don't play it much. Still, he hopes that by teaching young musicians their traditions, Los Gaiteros de San Jacinto will keep the fire of this music going for years to come. For the world, I'm Beto Arcos.
0: From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter, and we are back tomorrow.
2: World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. Macfound.org PRI Public Radio International